grief can be a really wonderful thing and it can be a beautiful thing. And it can remind me of the love that I shared with the people or, or even relationships that have passed. Welcome to episode 293 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Deborah, Pierce, Paula, and Sherry. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Deborah, Pierce, Paula, and Sherry for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we'd like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During the show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host. Joining me today is Lynn. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. And you wanted to start with a reading. The reading I picked is from Courage to Change, and it is from January 2nd. Turning to an alcoholic for affection and support can be like going to a hardware store for bread. Perhaps we expect a, quote, good parent to nurture and support our feelings, or a, quote, loving spouse to comfort and hold us when we are afraid, or a, quote, caring child to want to pitch in when we are ill or overwhelmed. While these loved ones may not meet our expectations, it is our expectations, not our loved ones, that have let us down. Love is expressed in many ways, and those affected by alcoholism may not be able to express it in the ways we would like. But we can try to recognize love wherever and however it is offered. When it is not, we don't have to feel deprived. Most of us find an unfailing source of love in Al-Anon. With the encouragement and support of others, we learn to treat our needs as important and appropriate and to treat ourselves as deserving. Today's reminder, today the alcoholic may or may not be able to give us what we desire, and no one person will ever offer all that we require. If we stop insisting that our needs be met according to our will, we may discover that all the love and support we need is already at our fingertips. The quote, In Al-Anon, I discover in myself the power to throw a new light on seemingly hopeless situations. I learn I must use this power not to change the alcoholic over whom I am powerless, but to overcome my own distorted ideas and attitudes. And that's from one day at a time. Thank you. That's a great reading. The idea of going to a hardware store for bread or the way I usually hear it in meetings up here for some reason is going to a hardware store for milk, but it's the same, same idea. Like you're not going to find it there. Yeah. I use this a lot. I think, you know, anytime I'm feeling frustrated, it's pretty often because I am trying to go to the wrong place for the wrong thing. And this one single metaphor, it always brings out laughs in meetings when you share it, no matter. And then, and then I can sort of rip on this metaphor about, you know, we have lots of different things that we need in our lives. Um, you know, that HALT acronym is really helpful to sort of explicitly name some of them. But I've added a whole bunch to HALT. I mean, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, uh, thirsty fits in <laughs> nicely there at the end. Yeah. Just if I haven't had enough self-care, if I hadn't ha- haven't had enough downtime, I need to pause and really get thoughtful about where I'm going to get those needs met. When I'm walking into a brick wall recognize that I'm the one who is continuing to walk into that brick wall. Maybe it's up to me to make a different decision. No kidding. I've asked you to come on the show to sort of share your own experience. So why don't you introduce as much as you want of yourself and then we'll get going. Thanks, Spencer. So I got into Al-Anon after I was already divorced from 
my alcoholic ex-husband. And I now say my, with lots of love, my, my qualifier. I mean, I am so grateful that I had identified him as a primary source of alcoholism in my life. After we had split, there was a lot of chaos going on in his life that led me to the rooms. But in the years since, I have been able to look at my family tree and really see that all of this began long before we got married. I don't call myself an adult child of, of alcoholics, but I'm certainly a grandchild of alcoholics, which conveniently makes me the daughter of unrecovered codependents who never found any recovery. But I had a really happy childhood growing up. Uh, I knew some of these alcoholics who later in their elderly years got sober, and one of them was actually really close with some of the AA founders. You know, they were in their 80s whenever I was a kid, and I remember hearing these stories about them cavorting across this two two aunts who lived together. So they they would cavort across the country on these alcohol-fueled adventures. They were almost told it was a cautionary tale. I was always told, you know, be careful. We have alcoholism in our family. Be careful. You might become an alcoholic, but never was there a narrative of be careful. You might become a codependent. And I use that. I know that in that, in the program, that word is somewhat controversial. I don't mind using that word because it seems to summarize my own disease, but I just have a lot of respect. um, If that is not a word that you or your listeners use. I use it all the time. Okay. (laughs) I, you know, I, um, in a meeting once I had someone ask me if I'm chairing me to not use that word. Interesting. And I, and I said, you might be right. And I've thought a lot about it in the years since. So, yeah, I've heard the term Alanonism, mm-hmm. which I think essentially means more or less the same thing, but maybe not mm. for me. It does. Mm-hmm. I can use that word to describe the way I behave as well. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have whatever. I don't know. People have issues with the codependent word, but <laughs> it is what it is. So codependency in my household growing up looked a lot like compassion. Right. So my dad died earlier this year, which we'll get to in some of the grief related to that. My parents were married for more than 45 years and they had a really great relationship, really loving. I mean, I have a sister and, you know, we grew up in this sort of like model home in a small town in the Midwest where everybody looked like me and everybody was in each other's business. And I just thought that this is what life was, was, you know, living close to your grandparents and being in a small school and the rumor mill and all those expectations and not having any privacy and not being able to say no. If somebody, if a neighbor asked you to do something, you were obligated to say yes. Much less if a family member asked you to do something, you definitely had to say yes because family was so important. This was the narrative I got, Mm -hmm. which is not a bad way to grow up. I did not have violence in the home and did not have active addiction in the home. But that sense of over-responsibility and hyper-functioning was well-established by the time I was in elementary school. And I can remember just being the tattletale and the do-gooder and the overachiever all throughout my schooling years. The negative consequences of that behavior really kicked in when I was a teen and then into my college years when I started to sense that feeling of frustration when I couldn't control an outcome or somebody else's behavior. Mm-hmm. To be honest, a lot of those tendencies really benefited me. I mean, I was a good student and I did well in college and I could fill up my schedule and get a lot of stuff done. But behind the scenes, it was feeding a monster that did not really come out until I was in a long-term relationship with a man who had a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. 
looking back, I, I probably had a few other friends in college who had drinking problems. And I, I definitely had some codependent based friendships that only fueled my victim thinking and only helped me get further into my own disease of it's everybody else's problem and it's not mine. And if I can just do better, I can make everything around me better. And I clung to that for a long time. Right after I graduated from college, my very closest and best friend was killed in an alcohol, alcohol related car accident. He drank, he, his blood alcohol content was three or four times the legal limit and he had fallen asleep behind a vehicle and the car backed over him. It was a totally senseless death. He was young. We were all young. And I was really in love with this person. I thought we were going to end up maybe having a life together. And I'd spent a lot of time trying to impress him or please him or control how he saw me or what kind of relationship he wanted with me. And I can now identify that as probably my, my first alcoholic codependent intimate relationship. When he died, I, we were not even living in the same part of the country, but that death really gutted me and, and was traumatic and led to many years of processing just uh, that traumatic grief. But I was also newly pregnant at the time. And I didn't even know that I was pregnant. Mm. <laughs> I was 22 years old, was definitely not planning on having a baby. I was with my qualifier and, you know, I had been told it would be difficult for me to conceive. So I wasn't even thinking that it was a possibility. Lo and behold, when I finally decide to take a pregnancy test, I find out I'm four months pregnant. Wow. And that was a huge shock. And I, and I, in the process of deciding what the course of the rest of my life was going to look like over those about a two week period of time, I had to ask myself some really difficult questions about who I was having this child with and what I was prepared, what I was ready for and what I was getting ready to embark on. I think I firmly sat in my corner of my codependency and I decided that's where I was going to make my home. I thought if I could just be patient enough with my qualifier, if I could just say the right thing or create a life in the right way or, you know, deal with his alcoholism in the right way, it, it would at least be manageable or at least be tolerable. But I also knew that ultimately I might be a single parent. And so that was a, a, a strange experience to be pregnant and sort of preparing for an unknown future that I knew might might hold what it actually holds now, which is me being a single mom. Of course, through the power of the program, I can see God working through me and through us and our budding family. And I'm really glad. I love, I love my life and I love my qualifier. And, and now, and we have two kids. <laughs> Things were going well enough for us to have a second child. We got married somewhere along the way. Even when we were getting married though, I, I had an intuition that I did not trust. And I was engaged in some real people pleasing behavior that this is what you're supposed to do. You know, you have a baby, baby was about a year and a half. I was uh, embarking on a really public job. I, um, I work in an industry that's pretty public facing. And so there's this story of, well, I'm a young mom and the next right thing for me to do is get married. And so I decided to get married and should have trusted my intuition at that time that that was not what I really wanted to do, but that I was feeling like that's what I should do that should word. And so I followed through with it. We were married for about six years and there were not very many happy years during that time. There was a lot of me trying to get him on track or help him see the opportunities that he was missing, or even just trying to convince him to get a job. 
I mean, I can't tell you how many fights we had over very basic things of what kind of life I wanted for my family and what kind of life I wanted for me. And I was really consumed with changing his behavior. I can look at my part now, which was, I mean, I was applying for jobs for him and doing things for him. I was denying him the dignity to live the life that he wanted, which was not the life that I wanted for him. But I thought that I had, it, because I was married to him, that was my right. I thought he had signed over those rights when we got married. And that's some of the codependency I think I learned from my family of origin. Although, you know, my parents had a great relationship, but they really were the center of each other's universes. And every decision they made was for the unit and not for the individual. They made it work, but I was trying to apply those same standards and those same norms to my relationship now. And it just, it just didn't work. <laughs> After a couple of years of really trying to leave him be and me focus on me and, you know, try to get all my ducks in a row so that I could leave with a good conscience, a clear conscience, I decided to file for divorce and he was not happy. And it was a really difficult couple of years. There was a lot of, well, you owe me this and I owe you that. And you failed me here. I mean, there was, it was this terrible game of tennis of expectations and resentment and anger and all of those tools. You know, I knew that he had a bunch of tools that he would use when we would fight, but I could not see that I also brought some pretty gnarly tools, um, weapons to that stroke, to that battle. And I, I, I misused God's gifts. Those were the first amends though that I made. And those are the first, you know, I was first working my inventory when I got into Al-Anon. It was what was my part in the dissolution of my marriage. You know, like I said, I didn't get into Al-Anon though until a full two or three years after we divorced, he had actually lost his apartment. And so here I was trying to co-parent with him and he was not going to have a home. I had a couple of good friends say to me, you know, you might benefit from an Al-Anon meeting. I would be happy to go with you if you'd like. And so went to the rooms. I picked up that detachment pamphlet and I realized that I could detach from the situation and it was not a jerk thing for me to do. I mean, I really thought that by detaching, I was leaving him hanging or I was, you know, letting my kid's father be homeless on the street, that somehow it was still my responsibility to take care of him because we had these kids together. I learned a new way. And it was through, I had a home group that was still my home group. Uh, It's a small, step group. And so we, we were in the steps. We just finished the traditions and now we're into the concepts of really with a fine tooth comb going through these key pieces of literature and, and synthesizing this information so I can figure out how to use it as I deal with my kid's father, as I deal with my friends, as I deal with my mom, as I deal with my coworkers. I'm really glad I got into those rooms because it was not just the unmanageability of my life was not limited to my alcoholic ex-husband and my disease expressed itself in every aspect of my life, including how I parent. That's what keeps me coming back is every day there's a new challenge and the opportunity for me to grow closer with my higher power and to expand my own consciousness and, and understanding of what unconditional love really means. There's really no limit to that. Yeah. It feels like this well that keeps deepening and that sweet water that comes from it is helping my garden grow in a way that it was never, you know, was never flourishing like this, even after I got divorced, even way before I found myself in an alcoholic marriage. It's all thanks to the program. So I don't know if you said when, when did that happen? So that was in 2016. Okay. Yeah. So about three years ago. Mm -hmm. 
What's interesting to me, and I know we all have our own stories, right? That what actually brought you to the rooms was was not, you know, really a crisis in the. I mean, there was a crisis there, right? Yeah. But it wasn't the sort of thing that I think many of us experience where we just hit a bottom. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore, right? Well, for the high-functioning overachiever. <laughs> okay, that was a bottom. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I mean, it, it was a bottom. I mean, because I, I was so, I was in agony uh-huh. about what to do in the situation. And just how to share custody of two young children at the time, they were probably nine and six mm-hmm. and just my stomach was in nuts all day, every day about what was the next right thing to do. I mean, I didn't have that phrase yet, but yeah. with the 50% of their time where they were not with me and he had a girlfriend at the time who, you know, like threw a rock through his bedroom window, trying to get his attention and okay. tried to kick down his door. And I just, the mama bear in me kicked in and I was, I there would be moments when I was blinded with rage at him. And I think deep down there was some self-hatred that I had gotten myself in the situation in the first place. You know, Mm -hmm. why did I, what made me choose him so long ago? So, you know, again, staring at the past instead of sort of that glance into the rearview mirror, I was catastrophizing and living in the hell of the past. And I was not staying in the present moment. And my perspective, my glasses were so, you know, it's like I wear glasses. And so when my glasses get all greasy and dirty, I mean, I cannot see straight. And I, I had a distorted view of, of almost every aspect of my life. I had a, a good relationship with my higher power. I mean, I, I did grow up in a religious and spiritual family that had a, a benign, loving and caring higher power, not a incriminating, revengeful higher power. So I had that going for me. But I also could be a doormat. I mean, you know, I have this all or nothing thinking and in me, I can be both the doormat who accepts unacceptable behavior and the police officer with my own citation notebook who can tell you every single infraction that you have ever made. And I clung so tightly to that citation book when I was married and I would pull it out anytime I needed to, when I perceived that I needed to reclaim some power or sort of regain the upper hand, I, I could put him down in a second. That was just so unfair to him. But yet I, but I was making him to be the bad guy. Yeah. So it seems to me that in that situation, there is a legitimate concern for the safety of your children. Right. Maybe part of the difficulty is in separating that concern from your feelings about, you know, his choices, his behavior, whatever, however you want to put it. I just didn't know how to put up a boundary. Yeah. I thought, I thought that a boundary meant controlling somebody else uh-huh. and controlling an outcome or a boundary meant saying, if this is the way I think it should be, this is the way it should be done. Or this is the way it will be done. Yeah. I mean, I, I treated myself like I was the higher power. I think I had really lost a sense of faith that not only was I, under the care of a higher power, but that he was, and my kids were, and I was really striving for perfection. I, you know, I, I didn't want my kids to feel any fear or pain or sadness. Mm. I wanted to put them in this little bubble where they didn't even know their dad was an alcoholic or that he made bad decisions or much less that I made bad decisions. (laughs) And if I could just shield them in the right way, then I could prevent them from being 
adult children, you know, you know, I can't, I can't change the fact that they are going to be the children of an alcoholic and a codependent. But what I can choose is that I'm in recovery and that I'm doing better. And when I started to know better, I started to do better. And it was, I, I did put up some boundaries and those first meetings helped me realize that I could tell him no, that he could not see the children. And so he had to come to my house to see them for several weeks. And then he finally got a place and he started to earn back that trust, but I had to let him earn back that trust. Mm-hmm. I made a decision that I didn't want to excommunicate him from my life or their lives, mm-hmm. that that was, that that was too far because I do over, I, I can overreact and then I lose sight of what is my part in it. And nobody had ever suggested to me, no mental health professionals, you know, in any kind of therapy situation had I ever been asked to talk about myself instead of to talk about my ex-husband. Hmm. I was so focused on him that I, I, I was not looking at my part. I was not looking at, hey, well, you made a bunch of decisions to get yourself here. What kinds of decisions would you like to make now? As a, a friend of mine says, when she'd been in the program for a while and was still complaining about her husband and a friend of hers, or maybe her sponsor, I don't remember, said to her, well, you know, dear, you did marry him. <laughs> so like, oh. And that's where that, you know, I think there's a lot of self, self-loathing in this program that masquerades underneath or, or is simmering underneath the high achieving cheery, optimistic personalities that we might find in these rooms. So I got a sponsor. I I kind of treated my home group as a sponsor for about the first six months or or year. And it was also the only meeting I went to. And one thing I really recommend to newcomers is that they try different meetings and that they take their recovery as seriously as an addict would in AA. And for for me, that means, you know, if I had a, a therapist appointment, a standing weekly therapist appointment during my work office hours, my managers would be okay for me to go and take that, you know, mental health appointment. And so that's how I treat my Al-Anon meetings as appointments. They are, they are mental health appointments for me. You know, oftentimes I'll hear people say that they can't make meetings because of this, that, or the other. It's like, well, I don't know. I've, I've tried to really mm-hmm. um, bring it into my life in a, in a, in a pretty serious way because it, has seriously helped my life. And without meetings, I, I do tend, I can lose my serenity. So I got a, started to go to some other meetings and met a woman who had what I wanted. And she was open and receptive to taking me on as a sponsee. And I was very nervous to ask her, but um, I also knew that I didn't have anything to lose. You know, that, that fear of rejection, just being in the rooms for as long as I had with, even without a sponsor had helped me feel what we say at the beginning or at the end about, you know, you may not like all of us, but you'll love us in the same way that we already love you. I felt that love as soon as I walked in the rooms, people were not telling me what to do. The lack of crosstalk was so illuminating. I didn't, I didn't know how to have a conversation with somebody that did not involve giving advice (laughs) or getting advice or asking for advice. Advice was sort of like the primary thing that I talked about with my friends or with my family members and it was all thinly veiled gossip and <laughs> criticism. I mean, I, I could advise anybody on anything and now I'm not in that business anymore. I heard somebody in a meeting say longingly, 
I used to love to give advice. <laughs> kind of like <laughs> an alcoholic would say, I used to love booze. And that, that was one of the hardest things for me to, to let go of was the sense that I knew what was right, even for people who I was not intimately close with, just, you know, my coworkers or my neighbors. And, but when I got a sponsor and started working the steps, a lot of the things that appeared on my inventory are things that on the surface appear really positive, you know, like my enthusiasm or my optimism. But I had a sense that those things were not what I thought they were. And what I have now come to see is that, for instance, my optimism, I've always been this very positive person, but my optimism is my attachment to an outcome. And my optimism is just a thinly veiled expression of my will. If I'm not careful, if I, if I cling to that optimism rather than just sort of a general hopefulness, I get myself into trouble because then I have an expectation that it's going to turn out. And then I have a resentment when it doesn't turn out. And then the, you know, that story is so well told and, and, you know, and then the the unmanageability and the chaos and the lack of serenity follows shortly thereafter. So now I can recognize when I am being optimistic with an attachment versus when I am just being generally hopeful and have surrendered my will over to my higher power. And I'm, Truly, was that from the trust episode? Try really using step three. When I am truly in step three, I don't have to actually have, I don't have to cling to my optimism because I I know that whatever happens is God's plan and is part of the process. Yeah, so talk a little bit about the steps and, and your experience with them. I mean, the inventory sounds like the inventory was enlightening. Oh yeah. Well, in the inventory, I was in a real rush to do. I mean, I started it day one. <laughs> I started, and okay. this is where my, my eagerness. What this is? It's my do-gooderness. You know, if if I have an assignment, you know, if there's an opportunity to sit in the front of the class, I will sit in the front of the class. If there's an opportunity to do an assignment that I've been told I need to do, I'll do it. My first pass, there was a lot of self-righteous behavior still involved in that and, you know, taking of other people's inventories, which I still have to really work on. I mean, as soon as I heard the word hypervigilance, I almost lost it. I had never heard that word before, but it resonated so deeply inside me that that's what I had been doing every day of my life Mm -hmm. was looking for an opportunity to help, looking for a problem to solve, looking for a problem or a mistake that was about ready to happen so that I could stop it from it's interesting to me that I had that experience having not grown up in an alcoholic home, but that was just, those were just the behaviors that I learned. That's just how I thought you lived in this world was anticipating things not going right so that you could sort of rearrange the situation. So things would go right. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad was always like super Mr. Prepared. We would go camping and we almost needed a second vehicle for all the stuff <laughs> just in case. But you know, my step work has evolved and it, I mean, it, it continues to evolve both as I work the steps and as I work with sponsees and as I listen to open talks, the Mary Pearl tea open talks that you run on the show have totally transformed my understanding, especially of those middle steps, how important it is that it is to do them in the right order. I think I, in my eagerness to get an inventory done, I quickly started making amends. You know, I, I can't identify any real negative consequences that came out of that. It certainly helped me 
feel like I was working the program. But a couple of years into the program, I I recognized the difference between working the program and living the program. Mm, mm, I like that. And that working the program also feels a lot like me trying to force solutions. Living the program means incorporating the steps and the traditions and the concepts into my life and into my behaviors. The steps have shown me a real literal path towards serenity. But I, I actually, for me, the traditions, I reference them and have pulled almost more things from the traditions in terms of my day-to-day life. And I think that that probably has a lot to do with this home group where we have spent so, so many months working deeply in each of them. I mean, it takes us probably two months to go through a single step tradition or concept. Can you talk about how you do that? Yeah, we are using the Reaching for Personal Freedom, the green book yeah. with the tree on it. And it has questions. It's just like the um, path to recovery. Mm-hmm. And so we'll just go through and read the section. Actually, it's different than path to recovery, which I'm flipping through right now, because it has readings and and examples, and then it will have questions yeah. about those passages. What I also like about the, as a friend of mine calls it, the tree book, the green book, the tree book, you know, yeah. we have the tan book and the blue book. and the, yeah. Yes. <laughs> What I really love about that that workbook is the way in which it focuses on how I can apply, particularly the traditions and the concepts, in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, it helps me to work step twelve. It helps me to to live step twelve, mm-hmm. as opposed to past recovery, which is also an excellent book, but particularly the traditions and the concept chapters are much more focused on how they function in Al-Anon groups for the traditions and how they function in sort of Al-Anon as a service at the world service level for the concepts. I think that is part of why I have a lot of friends who are like, oh, we're going to talk about a tradition. Ugh, why did I come today? You know. And when we use that book, they're like, oh, wow, that was so enlightening. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just look at the first tradition. Our common welfare should come first. Personal progress for the greatest number depends on unity. You know, at first I thought that that meant that we all had to agree on everything, (laughs) but it, you know, just the idea that we have, we do have a common welfare, even if I want to overreact. And again, this all or nothing thinking plagues me, you know, say, I am not going to have a relationship with my ex-husband. I'm, I've lost sight of the common welfare and our common humanity that we have. Right. You know, my favorite concept of service, which is the shortest and easiest one out of all of them. Participation is the key to harmony. Yeah. I have a responsibility to participate. I also have a a responsibility to myself to know when and how I participate. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to parse out the how, how do I, how do I be a mom? How do I be a coworker? How do I be a friend? You know, how do I be in relationship? I've had several relationships since I've been divorced. Um, one of them was two years. It was a long, complicated relationship that I, I was engaged in a lot of my codependency and, um, and it, but it just didn't really manifest itself in the same way that it did before. But through the traditions, I was able to see that I was actually over affiliating with this person. I would not have had the, the word to, 
to that affiliation work, which is in the third, the third tradition to recognize that, you know, I treated this boyfriend like he was my partner when in actuality we were still engaging, like we were just dating. It changed how I saw the relationship. Oh, so, or, or the sixth tradition, you know, our family groups ought never endorse finance or lend our name uh, to any outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary spiritual aim. Less problems of money, property, prestige, perfectionism, people-pleasing. I can add a whole bunch of things to that (laughs) that divert me from my primary spiritual aim. And so now I just think of it as my PSA. What is my PSA? What's my PSA today? Hmm. Sometimes I think that my PSA is going to be, I'll figure it out and it'll get perfect and I can just say it and it's the one thing and it will be the, the same thing forever. But I, right now I'm in a phase where I'm, you know, my, my, my primary spiritual aim is to have a closer relationship with my higher power and to, and to protect my serenity and to honor my program by, by living the program. And it helps me get clear when I stub my toe and think the world is going to end or when somebody is only, only nice to me, only average, (laughs) the open talk that you just posted Sam said something about when people, you know, I expect everyone to treat me like I'm the most special person they've ever met. And when they just treat me like I'm an average person, I feel let down. Mm-hmm. I have to keep that stuff in mind. Anyway, so yeah, the traditions, I, I can't encourage people enough to um, find a space to get into the traditions in particular. because they, they help me understand where I end and where somebody else begins. And I don't quite get that from the steps in the same way that I get in the traditions. Yeah. A friend of mine once said, and I'm sure they got it from somewhere, somebody else, that, you know, the, the steps are what keep me from suicide, the traditions keep me from homicide, and the concepts keep me from mass murder. And it's a little dark um, expression, but it really, to me, captures, you know, the steps are for me. The traditions are for me in my relationship with the people around me. And the concepts are how I live in society to some extent. Mm-hmm. And that's oversimplifying, of course. But Yeah, no, I, but I love that though. And, and if I think about, you know, if I'm powerless over people, places, and relationships, I mean, I, I got a, now a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. I mean, I got people up in my business all the time and <laughs> teachers and just a lot. There's a lot of managing, you know, the four M's I have to really get in quiet contemplation with my higher power about when am I managing in an appropriate amount versus when am I over managing? When am I mothering in in the way that I am called to be a mother? And when am I taking it too far? All it takes is a 12 year old in the house to he'll, he lets me know when I have over managed. And then we end up with, you know, a backpack sized hole in our drywall. I <laughs> see. I had, you know, I was really turning the screws and getting on them about their own personal responsibility and how they needed to start taking better care of themselves because they don't shower unless being asked. You know, they don't brush their teeth unless they're being asked. And I was engaged in my disease and it was the wrong time for it. And I was perhaps not being as kind as I could have been and compassionate. Mm-hmm. We were on our way to school and he was so frustrated. He slammed his backpack into the wall. God works miracles because in that moment, everything dropped. The need to get to school dropped. The need for me to be right dropped. The need for him to shower on a regular basis dropped. And it was, I'm so grateful. I did not have the rage, the anger, the shaming, 
you know, you've talked about sort of God working the miracle of removing rage from your life. Rage is not a, uh, an emotion that I actually had a lot, but boy, when I would get pushed to that point, you would know it. If you exhibited the, you know, an imperfect, you know, my own perfectionism, I, then I expect perfectionism from everybody else. But in this particular moment, it all just faded away. I felt the program rush through me. I felt like all I needed to do was hold space for him to let him know that he was loved and that nothing else, nothing that the house, you know, the state of the house doesn't matter whether or not we make good grades at school. Doesn't matter. You know, us knowing that we are loved and that we belong and that our higher power loves us and cares for us exactly the way we are. That was the space I needed to hold at that moment. I was in a fender bender a couple of months ago and that was another immediately. I threw my hands up and just gave it over to God and, ended up having really one of the best days I had. I mean, I had a day full of miracles because I, you know, I feel like I chose in that moment to just know that God had a hand in all of this. And I don't, you know, I, I know it's hard to sort of like, did, did God want me to have a fender bender to that day? I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know if I know God that well enough to be able to say, mm-hmm. but I, I know that I can choose to see it that way if I would like. And that is, that is my cho- choice. And I, just like you get a choice and I get a choice. Every, you know, we all get a choice. Yeah. It's my responsibility to exercise that. I'm just thinking about preteens and teens. Oh yeah. Yeah. My, my kids were 11 when I, when I started in Illinois. You remember that well. Uh, <laughs> well, and when we get into how we're using our lives in recovery, I have a kid's story actually. Uh, yeah. I can no. share. I think there's one other thing I want to share. I was talking about how I get attached to outcomes and my optimism is a, can be an indicator that I am engaged in outcome-based thinking. I also find myself waiting sometimes. And when I'm waiting, sometimes I'm waiting also with an expectation and I'm waiting for what I want to happen to happen. I live in a part of the country where there's a lot of Spanish spoken and I learned Spanish uh, when I was in high school. And then as a young adult, I lived in Spain. So I spend a lot of time thinking about Spanish and English. And I learn a lot about, well, Al-Anon through things like this. So in mm. Spanish, you can say esperar, which means to wait. It also means... Something about hope, right? Or to hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. My hopefulness can get me into trouble. I have recognized that through... Gosh, how do I don't I maybe I need to not say this, but basically you hit the nail on the head. Esperar means to wait or to hope. And there is an esperar kind of hoping and there is an ojalá kind of hoping. And ojalá really literally means God willing. And if I am waiting, if I'm hoping and waiting, then I'm engaged in my codependency. And if I am more hoping just with surrender to my higher power, then I'm in an ohala state of mind. And that, that single word really helps me fully release from my own expectations of what happens next. And really to, you know, that turning my will and my life over to the care of God is not an easy task. And so I have to remind myself every day that it's on me to actually let it go and to, to surrender that. I was listening to uh, on being podcast just this afternoon. Her guest talked about time. He was talking about time and how in Greek there's there's two different words for time and one of them is sort of our ordinary time in which things happen and the other is 
more sort of eternal time that is about just being now rather than about things happening. I think that's, you know, that the way in which different languages, different cultures, I guess, take these concepts and sort of split them up differently can, can give me some, some insight and some, a different way of, of, of thinking about stuff. And this guy in particular was talking about sort of the uh, contemplative experience and that the goal, one of the goals, and goal is maybe even not the right word here, but when you're having that contemplative experience, which might be what's happening maybe when you're meditating is, is you're sort of detached from ordinary time. And when you're detached from ordinary time, then like things like expectations just aren't there <laughs> because expectations are about something that's going to happen at some later time. I don't know. I'm, I'm going way off on a deep end here, but no. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, any, again, it's sort of losing sight of the present moment in the pursuit of what you hope will happen in the future. And I, we just don't live in the future. We live in the now and Breathing, pausing, going to meetings, you know, for me doing yoga, writing in my journal is a wonderful way to just pause and sort of switch gears and try and getting out of that. And we all have schedules. I've got, you know, times, you know, deadlines and places to be. And, you know, a lot of my life functions out of necessity by a clock. But when I can get into that space of prayer or you know, this, the space between the breaths, that's my favorite space. That's where the growth really happens for me. It detaches from this need to function like a train on time with mm. a whistle blowing behind you. And I know that, you know, for instance, this past year at school with my kids, I have become much more lax about whether or not we get to school on time. I mean, we do our very best, but at the same time, if I'm all stressed out, driving either aggressively or with tension in the car, my kids are going to pick up on that. Mm -hmm. And then my whole day starts off with this, oh no, I'm not going to meet some of these expectations of me. Oh no, I'm going to let people down. Oh no, I'm going to teach my kids that I don't care about school because I'm not on time. I mean, I have this whole narrative in my head about what's wrong. And it's like, what if I just detached from this need to be, perfect in everything that I do and just recognize that that is my people pleasing behavior rearing its head. And, and now I can see, you know, my oldest has really struggled with perfectionism in his schooling. And when he's having anxiety about standardized tests, I get to be the parent that says to him, it doesn't matter what you get on this test, whether or not you score really high on this test or you bomb it, you are still a person worthy of love and and you might think that this is going to determine what the rest of your life looks like. You are in sixth grade. <laughs> you have a lot, you have a lot of life ahead of you. And even if, you know, you're, you're maybe on a bigger, on a bigger stage, taking a bigger test and you are doing a, a job interview that, that really could change the course of your life. Even if it doesn't go the way that you think it's going to go, you are a worthy human being without achieving a single thing. And that was a narrative I did not hear as a young girl. And I guess it's my way of reparenting myself is sort of saying, it's okay if you don't know everything. It's okay if you get 
the Jeopardy question wrong. <laughs> it's okay if you, you know, you, you bust the deadline. And I also have to look at what's my part. And if there's, if I'm consistently not getting, you know, every day of the week, I can't get my kids to school on time or I can't turn my work in on time. You know, I can look at what is my part and take more personal responsibility, but I can also, I can be my own worst critic and I can really eviscerate myself in the same way that I used to eviscerate other people. Now that I know better, I can do better on that too. I was having a conversation with my boss recently about a thing I was working on that was, you know, behind the schedule that I had set for it. Right. Yeah. And I was, I was going into this, well, you know, this happened and this happened and, and that's why we're behind. And, and there's all this uncertainty about actually where we're going that I thought we were going in one direction, but now it looks like maybe we're not going in that direction. And, and he's like, that's okay. <laughs> you know, like you say, yeah. we're, we're, yeah. we can be much more our own critic than, than other people. Well, and if we find ourselves in a situation where somebody is really not happy with our behavior to have the power to say, that's really more about what's going on in their life than what's going on in my life. And am I, am I really participating to the best of my ability right now? Mm-hmm. And, and my best might not be good enough for what they are expecting out of me right now, but that's not for me to unpack. What I can unpack is, you know, I think about how I fill my time in my day and self-care is really important to me. Fulfilling my dharma and completing my work and showing up and being a reliable team member is also really important to me. Mm-hmm. But but sitting in my backyard and breathing and meditating and detaching from these expectations and this life, this you know capital L life that I've made for myself, I need that humbling quiet time to sort of recognize that I, I can take myself too seriously. You know, I think about you know that we're all stardust and in the big expansive or overarching time, you know, we are just a blip and whether or not this one day goes well, or this one assignment goes well, or this one parenting moment, if I don't do it perfectly, I got to have faith in a higher power that, that it's okay. Yeah. We started your story near the beginning of your story with the death of a friend. And I know you mentioned your father died recently and I think you had some difference in the way that that affected you or how you, how you lived with that than, than in that earlier death. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah, I would love to. I think grief is so important and I, and it's, it maybe sounds odd to hear these words come out in succession, but grief can be a really wonderful thing and it can be a beautiful thing. And it can remind me of the love that I shared with the people or, or even relationships that have passed the grief book, transforming our losses. I would really recommend to anyone, not just it's opening our hearts, transforming our losses. Yes. It's about death, but it's about, you know, grieving a childhood that you didn't have or a relationship that you wanted to happen that did not happen. And that, you know, that has been, I mentioned a a relationship to your relationship that ended. I had to grieve that relationship. And when I didn't take the time to grieve that relationship, I just found myself in, another, an unhealthy relationship quickly thereafter, because I hadn't taken the time to really heal. When my friend died, it was so unexpected. And he and we were so close that it, but in some ways, it really jumpstarted my life, because it made me realize that tomorrow is never is not guaranteed. And you, you really only live once. And if you want to say something, share something, tell somebody you love them, 
there's this carpe diem idea that really became real. I mean, I knew that idea in concept, but I didn't think that when I talked to him, that was going to be the last time I talked to him. And so I started living with a lot more intention and I started recognizing that when the sun shines on my skin and the birds are chirping and the breeze is coolly crossing my skin, I mean, those are moments that he doesn't get to experience and that I do. And that the best way that I can honor him is by amplifying my gratitude for the present moment and for the love that is in my life and for the friends that are in my life and the gifts that God has given me. And so when, in my experience, when I uh, had this grief at a young age, younger age, it added a texture to my life that I think of as now one of the most beautiful parts of my life. Hmm. I would not have chosen to carry on the pregnancy if my friend had not died. I didn't think I was ready to be a mom. I certainly, the, the person that I had, the, now my wonderful co-parent who I, I actually co-parent really well with, he would not have been my first choice, you know, because mm-hmm. it was also this whole, you know, I was my, my please perfect repeat cycle that none of this fit in with please perfect and repeat none of it. And I was going to be an unwed mother and because I didn't know I was pregnant for so long. I mean, there were so many opportunities for shame around that, but I, I decided that I just was going to own my story and just really, I don't want to say live loud, but live, um, I can see there's some codependency in the statement, but live enough for the both of us. Now that I've been in program, I can recognize that that is some over, over-functioning on my part and that I just need to live enough for me. But I do want to live a, a rich life that is is full of love and where I am doing my best. And, you know, choosing to have a family was a big part of that. So when I think about that death, I think about how I I would not have the life that I have now if I hadn't experienced that loss when I did. And I was able to transform this pain. It's, it's still painful. And it's, and it's a, you know, grief is something you carry. It's not something you get over. It's not something I get over. It's something that I carry. But I also don't need to have a victim complex about it. A dear friend died. I didn't die that day. And he was not my husband. And even if he were my husband, I don't have to die too. So when my dad was really sick, he, uh, he had cancer and he was given two to five years and he lived 18 months, but that was, that diagnosis was a gift in and of itself because it gave us time to be together, to, to say all the things that we wanted to say. He played guitar. We would make music together. We would cook together. We had hopes of doing maybe a little bit of traveling before he died, but that did not come through, but I spent a lot of time traveling to go see him and I wouldn't take back any of those trips yet. He was young and it was, he was the first of his friends to die. And, you know, my mom is still pretty young and, and I think has a whole new chapter ahead of her. But my dad was a real patriarch of not just our family, but of, of the friend group as well. And I found myself as he was coming, having these, real end of life conversations with himself and questions of, am I good enough? And have I done enough to use my program bedside with him, literally reading from books about just the fact that, you know, he, he felt like a burden. He felt like he was doing something wrong. He felt like he was dying wrong. And for me to be able to hold space for him to say, what is happening to you and to us is all exactly as it should be. And, 
and he did have, he, he was a faithful man and he, he did have a relationship with his higher power. And, I, but I think I was able to put into some words, some things that he had never heard because, you know, he was raised, you know, he was raised in an alcoholic home with, you know, domestic abuse and he, he had had to reparent himself to the best that he could, but he never mm-hmm. found a recovery program. And the ripple effect of my own recovery program brought a lot of solace to me and, I don't, I can't speak for my family, but, um, I'm just glad that I found the program when I did, because it really fortified me to have a spiritual foundation that I needed to carry me through the last two years of his life and to speak at his funeral and to speak without any shame about my love of my higher power and my faith that we are all being cared for and that this is all, it's all happening as it should be, that we will be okay because we are okay. You know, there's this idea that this too shall pass. This too is passing. Mm. Whatever's painful in your life, you are passing it right now. But also, our life is passing. Th- these are these are the good old days. I choose to honor that by trying to be really present and show up and and say, "Heck yeah!" And sometimes saying "heck yeah" means saying, "Oh heck no." to things that I don't want to do or not just that, but, um, but ways of thinking that I don't want to engage in it. It would not have served me at all when taking care of my dad during his final you know, weeks and days, helping my mom and my sister for me to lose my serenity and to lose myself and to lose my own well-being. And so I was going to Al-Anon meetings and crying in the arms of strangers and, and feeling their love. I mean, I just, I could not have survived that if I didn't have the program. And I'm just that gratitude is pretty profound. I'm going to say, heck yeah. Heck yeah. (laughs) You know, and Spencer, you and all the guests that you've had have been so helpful during, you know, over the years. And um, I know everybody expresses their thanks to you, but I join their chorus. Well, thank you. If you had maybe an elevator ride with somebody who was struggling with alcoholism, addiction in a loved one. Maybe they haven't come to Al-Anon yet. What would you say? There is help for you, not for the person who you feel like is the sick person in your life. And it's not your fault and it's not your responsibility to fix it. Can't, you know, the, probably I would lead with the, the three C's, you know, you can't cure it, didn't cause it, can't control it. Yeah. That would be, that's probably shorter than an elevator pitch, but, um, you know, it's hard because I, I had a really um, powerful program friend early on express that she has removed the word you from her vocabulary. She just doesn't say you. I mean, I'm sure there are some instances where she needs to, but so when I'm, when I encounter somebody who could really use the program, I try to lead with I Yeah. and share in an appropriate way. Cause what I would, what I have gone through or what I am going through is not what somebody else is going through. But if I, if they see something in me that resonates, maybe it will, it will be what gets them in the room. Cause I certainly am glad that somebody mentioned Al-Anon to me. If nobody had mentioned it to me, I would probably still be living in chaos and a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like, I want to speak the words there. It's like, you know, you want to speak the words if you don't want to, I don't want to try to sell you on the program, but yeah. uh, finding that I know that my higher power uh, will help me in those moments. Say just what I need to say. Yeah. I found help. I'm not alone. Yeah. 
I was not responsible for my alcoholic loved one's behavior. You know, when we're doing first step in a meeting, because we have a newcomer, and I'm telling a little bit of my story because I have maybe three to five minutes to tell it. And, you know, it's tough to tell that story in three to five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I usually end with something like, I found miracles here. And I hope that you can find something like what I found. And that is probably the only place I say you. Yeah, you're right. Which tradition is it? Attraction, not promotion? 11, I think. Express what we found. Express our story. Hope that somebody will identify with something. I guess that's it. The best sermon is an example. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. And I asked you to pick some music. So what's the first one? picked a song, a relatively new song from Lucas Nelson and the Promise of the Real. This is a song called Bad Case. You have the want, but not the need. You have, you want the flower, but not the seed. You might be clever, but you're tied up in your wounds and there are consequences circling like birds. You've got a bad case of wanting what you can't have. It must be a terrible feeling. I can't help you anymore. You can do what you want. I can't help you anymore. Oh, you've gone too far. In country songs, particularly, you hear a lot of codependency and you hear a lot of alcoholism. I actually, uh, or when I'm driving around listening to the radio, um, I mean, I just, I guess you spot it, you got it. So, uh, but in this case, <laughs> in this case, I spot what I spot it because I got it. And I, um, I spot somebody calling out an alcoholic. I spot, um, Somebody who may, or I spot some recovery that says, I, I can't help you anymore. You can do whatever it is that you would like to do. Um, yeah. But I can't help. And very rarely do you hear in pop music somebody saying, you got to do you. And, and, I, and there are consequences circling like birds, and I'm not here to protect you from them. So that felt like some powerful recovery in a Americana song. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our lives and in our meetings this week. And I was thinking about that. Like, sometimes I've, I've been having like a much quieter life recently than, than it has been at other times. I think I said last week, in fact, I know I did because I just listened to last week's episode, that my heart power had been giving me a lot of first step meetings. And I had another one. <laughs> you know? <laughs> We we had newcomers, and so in that meeting, when we have newcomers, one of our tables, because that's how we how we roll here in Michigan with table meetings, one of our tables did the first step. I think the other table was doing Tradition 6. So yay, yay traditions, huh? <laughs> I always find it helpful in two ways. One is reminding me where I was, but also letting me see for myself what the program has done. And also, even when I'm sitting at a table with people that I've known for years, and I know their story, I might hear it a little differently. I might hear something that that touches me in a different way. 
So I, I almost never shy from, from a first step table. You know, sometimes it's like, man, all I've been doing is first steps. Well, I think I need it. <laughs> I must need it. You know, and for me, as as I've said, the, the big thing that it is in my life that I know I'm powerless over is, is my parents' health. And having just come back from seeing them and realizing that I'm, like, not so stressed about it anymore says that, you know, the program is working in, in that, in that aspect of my life. At work this week, I talk a lot about work. It's a big part of my life, right? You know, I spend what a half of my waking hours at work if I'm getting enough sleep. And the team that I work on has, has recently changed in, in our makeup. A, a number of people left. One person retired. A couple of people moved to other teams as we had ended a big project. And, and so our, um, I'll call her coach. Um, we we have a term that we use that means something in the context of the way that we work. But coach, I think, is a good word. She has been leading us in a series of exercises that she calls team formation. And what we did this this week was to talk about toxins for feedback. That when I'm receiving or giving feedback to somebody else, there are some particular toxins that can poison that conversation. She identified four, which were, if I can remember them, blaming, defending, stonewalling, and the fourth one that none of us identified ourselves as, which is why I'm having trouble coming up with it. It'll come to me. doesn't matter. And she had written these things on the wall around the room because we have these walls you can write on. It's a wonderful thing. Then she said, okay, I want each person to identify the one toxin that they find most prevalent in their life and go there. And then as a group of people sitting under, I, I chose defensive or de- defensive, I think was the word, although stonewalling is also a thing that I do. But <laughs> And I said, I said to her, I said, you know, I can't decide really between defensive and stonewalling. And she said, oh no, you belong there. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> and there were four of us sitting under defensive. And then she said, okay, now I want you to, as a group, identify ways in which you can help to reduce the effect of this toxin on yourself. I'm like, man, this is so sort of fourth step and sixth step or something going on here. But of course, I I didn't say that. But I did find myself, as we were thinking of things, or other people saying some of these slogans that we use. Why am I reacting in this way? I'm trying to remember. There were some good ones that came out. I'm like, oh man, that's program right there. It was really interesting. And as happens in a meeting, right, where somebody else talks about something that I'm like not liking in myself, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. I'm not the only person, right? I'm not the only person that feels this way. I'm not the only person that acts this way. But to have that happen in a work context was was interesting. And then we shared them around the room, each group sharing with, with everybody else what we had come up with. And then she's having us do this thing where once a month we give some feedback to somebody else in the group. She sends out like a Google Doc, Google form for each of us to fill out about one other person in the group and randomly selecting who it is we're giving feedback to each each month. I'm like, this is so uncomfortable. (laughs) I don't like getting feedback. I don't like giving it. And of course... The person I got was our coach. 
<laughs> so I have to give feedback to her. Challenge the authority figure. Sort of. Yeah. She actually was a sergeant in the army. So she has some of that kind of attitude and she and I bump heads, at least in my head. We do. It's interesting to see her expressing these things that I don't expect to be coming from her. Right. Like, you know, because when she first joined the the team, I saw her as sort of a taskmaster. She's like, well, you guys need to do this and you need to do that. And, and that's not the only thing that she is. Right. So, I don't know, using my program to to try to see other people as they really are, I think is maybe where I'm going with that, but also just using my program in this new thing we're doing at work. Uh-huh. Oof. A lot of fear and vulnerability in a situation like that. Oh my goodness. Yes, there is. But, you know, we're getting there. and And I think it's important for people who work closely together to have some level of trust about being emotionally safe with each other. That's where we're trying to go, I guess. How about you? Yeah, it makes me think, where is God in this? Everywhere. Everywhere, all the time. Okay, so mine, uh, as a you know, parent of a tween, mm. uh, well, and then a wannabe tween, we have a lot of technology in our lives, unsurprisingly, and video games and things. And we're making this transition into summer where... We're not as structured as we have been, and we don't have bedtimes at the same time that we used to, and we don't have things to go to and party bells to try to beat. And, you know, it's just, it takes a while to transition, and I've had to really hold that lightly. But we've been, we just started the concepts in my home group. Like most people, my eyes have kind of glazed over at the concepts, with the exception of participation in the key to harmony. That one I, no one remember. <laughs> but the first one is the ultimate responsibility and authority for Al-Anon World Services belongs to the Al-Anon groups. Yeah. And so the reading on that in the Green Book really focused on the, the words that stuck with me were the shared responsibility and balanced authority. Mm-hmm. So that's not technically in the concept, but the interpretation in that reading helped me see that what we're really talking about here is, you know, making sure that everybody is participating in those things. And it it reflects back to the traditions of being self-supporting and being autonomous, but there are limits to those, you know, there are limits to, you know, I I can only be responsible for myself. Um, But when I've got these kids, what, where does that line end? And so this is where the technology comes in. I was on my way to work. The kids are old enough for me to leave them here while I go trying to give them a little little mom lecture about their technology use and that they needed to have personal responsibility and try, try to bring the Al-Anon language into the home as often as I can and try to really, I don't want to say, I, I do treat them like young adults. I mean, I'm, I'm always trying to empower them to make good choices for themselves and to not always be, I don't want to be the over-momming authority figure that I'm the one who only sets limits, they have to start learning how to set limits for themselves. And so I've been trying to model that behavior and and encourage them to do that. But this week I had this recognition that I do have a responsibility to help them set limits and that that is part of my job right now Hmm. at this particular moment in time to help them set limits. And so what that looked like was I actually bought what I'm calling an internet regulation device. Okay. <laughs> like a, a router that you can sort of turn off the internet or you can set, let you can say, you know, you only get so many hours a day on these particular games or these particular platforms. They did not like 
the internet regulation device coming into the home because they don't like limits. No, yeah. I mean, boundaries are hard for me to receive, but I recognize that this is a really needed opportunity for us to have conversations about boundaries and for us to get used to boundaries and to just, you know, work on those, those muscles about setting boundaries, receiving boundaries, respecting boundaries. And for me also detaching from the win of how that happens. I think we're going to, I'm going to have to introduce this device and this regulation in sort of a thoughtful way where I don't come in with this iron fist and just totally remove their say and totally remove their responsibility. You know, this needs to be part of a bigger conversation that we're having about how we take care of ourselves and how we think about what each day needs. And that if we're spending all day on video games, what are we not paying attention to in mm-hmm. our lives? What are, what are some other parts of our brains and our hearts that we're neglecting when we spend so much time on these other things? That rigidity and that all or nothing thinking gets me nowhere. And I think it gets them nowhere either. And it certainly does not support my bigger goal, which is or bigger primary spiritual aim, which is having a household where we're living these principles of the program in our day-to-day lives. So it's a yes and as with everything. And, and also it's a special worker. I love the tradition about hiring, you know, um, outsourcing things to special workers. I cannot stay home all day and regulate their internet use. You know, I have, pr- I have a responsibility to my job that I need to fulfill, but I can, re- I can hire a third party, if you will, mm-hmm. with this device to help me with that. But it also is not the end all be all. And I can't just say, okay, now I've set that limit. And now I'm done. We're not going to have any more conversations about I mentioned the the showering thing, like the hygiene. There are bigger conversations to be had and uh, about sort of how we run our day-to-day lives and the internet is just one part of it. And I do have a responsibility to have those conversations with my kids. They still do need my guidance, but I have to have faith that they have a higher power who's playing a role in their life, whether or not they acknowledge it. And I have to recognize that I, I, yeah, I am not their higher power. I might be the person who is in a balanced place of authority right now, but they have another parent. They have their own will and their own desires that they have to start to learn to negotiate with. Because if I start taking that away now, in 10 years, that's not really going to help them learn how to set limits for themselves, for substances or other behavior, or obsessive behaviors or anything like that. So, be interested to hear how that, how that works out. And it makes me think about what kind of limits do I set like on my use of yes. those stupid games on my phone or... Whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, how, and how do I invite them into, you know, it's like, you know, the garden or hobbies or act or reading or, you know, there are, th- there are things that we can share. I don't have to parent from a no perspective. I, I can parent from a, a more positive parenti- parenting perspective of like, yeah, well, what can, what else can we do today? Let's come up with some other new ideas and seek their input rather than just tell them how it's going to be. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So looking forward, working on putting together an episode on having had a spiritual awakening or, or something like that at the suggestion of, of a listener. What I'm asking for is for you to send us your spiritual experience, your spiritual awakening as an email, a voicemail. You can join our conversation here. We do welcome your thoughts. And Lynn, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795.
You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecoveryshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions. If you have a topic you'd like for us to talk about, let us know. And our website is therecovery.show, which has all the information about the show, notes for each episode, links to the music, uh, music videos typically on YouTube, links to the books that we talked about, etc. We'll take a short break before we look at what's in the mailbag. And what is our second song? This one is Let It Go by James Bay. I got to see Paul McCartney last year and Let It Be was almost my my pick for this one, but this one has the same sentiment. Now we're slipping near the edge, holding something that we don't need. Oh, this delusion in our heads is going to bring us to our knees. So come on, let it go. Just let it be. Why don't you be you and I'll be me. Everything that's broke, leave it to the breeze. Why don't you be you and I'll be me. Mm. That song, I, anytime I need a, a reminder that we are all individuals who are living our own lives and the, the chaos and confusion and angst that that I'm experiencing is often because I'm trying to love someone into being somebody who they're not. And that letting others voluntarily evolve from the acronym episode really resonated deeply with me because the way that I have always loved people is to try to get them to be better versions of who they already are. That's not what love is. And this holding on to something that we don't need, it's really helpful for me every day to sort of think, what am I holding on to that is not serving me? Mm-hmm. And recognize that it's it's up to me to let go of that, and and then that circles back to the bread at the hardware store. because <laughs> yeah. I'm holding on to that expectation that suddenly the hardware store is going to have a little little bread basket at the front, and I just don't see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> and you might not want to eat it if they did. Why isn't that true? <laughs> Okay, we get some emails and uh, a voicemail this week. So Mark writes, I occasionally come across a discussion of AA's big book as I make my way forward through the back catalog of The Recovery Show episodes. Some hosts or guests have had more exposure to the big book than others, but I cannot recall anyone relating a negative experience or advancing an argument against its use by those of us in the other rooms or other program. I don't think it's a big deal but I have never read from and have never even held a big book in my hands. And I have a reflexive reaction when the topic comes up that I would be trespassing if I began browsing through it and definitely on dangerous ground. If I undertook to make a study of it, I'm only describing my reaction and mean no criticism of anyone else. As I think about it, my discomfort may reflect the depth of my codependence, my laxity in observing boundaries or the fragility of my recovery, but my instinct still urges caution. In one of the episodes, Spencer recounted how, in the early days of Elanon, and in the absence then of literature of our own, those pioneers studied and read from AA's big book. It is my understanding that since then, Elanon has not ever included the AA big book as Elanon conference-approved literature. Autonomous Elanon groups, in my understanding, can choose to use it or not, and it is without question that the recovery show can refer to it, quote, and study from it in whatever way benefits the most. The book, How Elanon Works, includes a few references to the AA Big Book to the same effect as Spencer's observations, but also includes this passage from chapter 22 entitled, A Husband Changes His Attitude, 
which deals with a husband's struggling to come to grips with his wife's alcoholism. I read all her recovery books. I read the big book. I analyzed the 12 steps to be sure they were acceptable. I was compulsively involved in someone else's life, and my life was unmanageable. My wife is not my qualifier, but otherwise I could be that guy. I am not one whose recovery has included attendance at open AA meetings. Apart from my personal interactions with my qualifiers, my experience in that context has been limited to a few meeting-like presentations at a qualifiers treatment center where AA members shared their stories and a few weekend 12-step retreats where there were members of both programs participating and sharing. For me, it was very potent stuff, moving to an almost overwhelming degree. I definitely gained a new perspective and perhaps insight about my qualifiers' journeys, and I hope my sharing provided some something similar in others. There were a lot of commonalities across the aisles, but also differences. There was something profound in being present in rooms where you could see and feel some addicted or alcoholic stranger in response to an Al-Anon stranger's story shared the depth of their regret and sorrow for the things that had happened and the things they had done. As a stranger to those things, it was not for me or in me to forgive or absolve, and they were not looking for that. It occurred to me that to a greater extent than I realized, that was true also for me and for my qualifiers as well. Either or both of us may have or have had amends to make, but there is more to it, and it's more personal and private. The retreats were like limited, privileged, guided tours through the garage on an inside job. In those settings, there was a powerful mix of the sacred and the profane, the real and the deeply spiritual. Within the physical confines and face-to-face proximity, I could overcome my tendency toward awe and a compassion so over-the-top as to be disingenuous and inappropriate. I am not confident I could do so on my own in study of their big book. The retreats were like mutually and reciprocally curated and supervised sharings of each other's otherwise separate programs. Of course, it is all and always take what you like and leave the rest. Right now, my feeling is that I'm not ready to open that door, and therefore grateful I haven't felt the need to leave the rest in the meetings I attend. I do know the group consciences of those meetings is that members of other 12-step programs are welcome, but asked to share only as their experience relates to their recovery in Al-Anon. I don't have wisdom on the issue of cross-platform sharing, but I sense the fellowship exercises great care in the consideration of these issues. Part of what I have gained from the recovery show is the freedom to think about this kind of thing in new ways, and I'm certainly open to the possibility that my time will come or may already be at hand to take a look. Mark. Long share there, Mark, but there's some good stuff in there. Uh, Lynn, do you have thoughts about what Mark has written? You know, the big book is not a large part of my recovery, but I have attended some open AA meetings and I found them so special and so sacred. And when I, the open AA meeting that I went to for the very first time, I did identify myself as a newcomer, as a member of Al-Anon, but you know, that I was there as part of my general recovery journey and they gave me a book and it, you know, it's in now my Al-Anon literature. And, you know, I, I turn often to the, uh, on awakening passage in prayer, which I believe is on page 78. That's in the step 11 discussion, I think. See, I have some familiarity with the book. Oh, gosh. Look at me. Isn't my Alan on this trying to get the exact right page? If you Google Upon Awakening, it's a, a off-sided prayer from the big book. Um, but that's the extent of my study. But I I have a yes-hand perspective about these things. You know, my own recovery work is certainly not limited to conference-approved literature or, my, you know, my, my own wellness work, I guess I would say. And, sure. you know, if the big book is resonating with you, you know, if the medicine works – 
I, I think that it's, you can follow it. I have other people in my life who, who do a lot of big book study and their recovery certainly seems to enhance mine. And I think the more understanding that can happen between all of the programs, I think the entire recovery community benefits. And it certainly seems like the more familiarity that I would have with that could help. Yeah. I know that the part of the book that I'm most familiar with comes from attending AA speaker meetings. The one that I went to most often uh, opened with a reading of, of the How It Works section, which includes the steps and the promises. That particular couple of pages has kind of burned into my brain. I have read part of it, the the big book, but it's it's not a huge part of my recovery. But there there is some for me some really important stuff in there in understanding alcoholism and understanding how that affects the loved ones in my life. Both of the meetings that I attend regularly, and and actually the meeting that was my home group for years, are held in the same building at the same time as AA meetings. So we often get people who might have gone to the AA meeting coming into the Al-Anon meeting, usually because they want to come to the Al-Anon meeting. Occasionally you get somebody who's just in the wrong place and, and they're like, oh, okay, you know, and, and, and head down the hall or whatever. Sometimes, and th- I think this is, you know, Mark alludes to this when he, he talks about asking people to share only their, their Al-Anon related experience. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And it's, it is uncomfortable. I try to hold some understanding for people who are, particularly people who are new in recovery, that they're they're still learning what the boundaries are, and they're still learning how to observe the boundaries. Yeah. You know, that part's a little tricky. That gets uncomfortable occasionally for me. I don't know. Personal experience. Yeah. When in doubt, do nothing. Exactly. I realize that, that anybody who is in AA very likely has loved ones who are alcoholic or addict, and that in and of itself qualifies them for attendance at Al-Anon, even if they're maybe not recognizing that yet. Could you read the email from Nancy? Hi, Spencer. My name is Nancy. I've been wanting to post a comment or message, but I've been a little shy about it. I'm a double winner. I've been sober for almost 15 years, and I've been in Al-Anon for about seven years. My teenage son became an anorexic. I tried to micromanage every bite, and I myself ended up in the hospital. I was physically, emotionally, and spiritually spent. P.S. Thank you for your service. There are not a lot of Al-Anon meetings in my area. I listen to your podcast almost every day. It is a definite lifeline for me, and I imagine many others. Thanks for that sharing. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. And I think this just speaks to, sometimes I hear people say, you know, my situation is not as dire. I'm not in as much need of sort of immediate helper. It's not as obvious to me that I need help as it is for the alcoholic or the addict. And I think your note, Nancy, just speaks to how that is not always true. If you ended up in the hospital trying to micromanage your loved one, wow. And not all of us get to that place, but I, you know, I probably could have. I probably could have. Yeah. Alcohol, alcoholism kills, but codependency kills too. Yeah. Exactly. Melinda says, as someone who must travel for work, I so enjoy and I'm so helped by your podcasts. Honestly, there are moments when I feel you are saving my life. I just shared your podcast with my recovery community and I hope your message of strength and hope will help many others on their journey to be happy and free. 
Just a thank you for someone who came by their seat in these Al-Anon rooms honestly, but sometimes doesn't enjoy the view. Please keep up your awesome work sincerely and gratefully, Melinda. And I love that. <laughs> doesn't enjoy the view. Yeah. Uh-huh. No. You know, I uh, I always try to sit in the in the in the seat that has the best view of their windows. That was at least early on in my recovery, and now you know I can stare at the wall, and I'm <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I also I, I love what she said about came into the Alanon rooms. Honestly, I wasn't sure that I belonged when I first got in because I wasn't in the home with an alcoholic. But boy, by the end of that first meeting, I saw myself in others and. Mm-hmm. You want to read the note from Greer? Greer sends his or her thanks and the topic idea. In regard to your spiritual awakenings episode, I personally found that the early episodes of the recovery show began my spiritual awakening. You, Kelly, and Swetha each shared about your higher power in such an accessible way. I now feel like I notice my higher power's presence in my life. Sometimes it's as simple as the order of songs on my playlist or my cat snuggling me when I'm stressed, making a green light, especially if I'm running late. I'm sure you've heard this before, but I really enjoy the Mary Pearl episodes. I love how she is full of program, humor, and reality. I also really enjoy the Anne Marie episode. She had a wonderful story to share and a great message. What a blessing. Amen. I'm not sure if there are any open AA speakers available for you to share, but I'd be interested in listening to one, especially since you said open AA speakers played a huge part in your recovery. And Greer also wanted to suggest a possible topic, co-parenting with an addict. Greer. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's make that happen. <laughs> and Anne-Marie, oh gosh, I can't tell you how many times I've sent that specific episode to friends in the program. What a blessing. What a blessing. Yeah, I remember listening to that and thinking, yep, got to share this one. I intentionally, I think is the word I want here, I intentionally am not sharing a whole lot of AA talks because they are available in other venues, and I'd rather focus on Al-Anon recovery. I know that I have shared a couple. One of the talks by Father Tom W. was his AA talk, and the other one of his that I shared was his Al-Anon talk, him being a double winner. I seem to recall sharing at least one other AA talk in the last 300 almost episodes. I actually find most of my talks on another website, which is called something like Recovery Radio. I can never remember the exact title. I'll put a link in the show notes. And there's also xaspeakers.com, which has a lot of talks. Most of the Al-Anon talks that I post on podcast, actually, I found them on, on one of those sites to start with. The Mary Pearl talks, I, I actually bought CDs. And they're much better quality than I get when I download stuff off the internet, which is is nice. And of course, another place to find AA Open Talks is the podcast Sober Speak by my friend John. He asks a different alcoholic, typically alcoholic, occasionally an Al-Anon, each week to tell their story. So check it out at SoberSpeak.com. Those resources are out there, and it was sort of my choice to, to not share a lot of AA Talks here. Ashley sent us an email and a voicemail. Hello, Spencer and co-hosts. This is Ashley from Alberta. I'm still listening to your podcasts on a needed topic basis. I've continued to find so much healing in them while listening to them on my commute. In one podcast, Spencer mentioned sitting with his feelings and how he doesn't really like it, that his normal method of dealing with them is to call someone, tell them so that they can deal with those feelings for him. 
I had a big light bulb come on for me when he shared this, as this is exactly what I do. Thanks to his share, I am now aware this is one of my behaviors I need to watch for. I've actively been trying to feel my feelings instead of dumping them on others. So thank you, Spencer. I also wanted to thank Eric. I've recently downloaded the meditation app he has mentioned a few times. I haven't been doing it for long, but I hope to make it a pillar in my life. So thank you, Eric, for sharing this valuable tool. I also wanted to ask Eric about a different item he mentioned in a different podcast. He talks about online resources and information on working with your kids and raising them without the use of punishment. It was in the episode where he shared about his daughters taking his car for a drive and getting pulled over by a cop. I loved how he eventually resolved the situation while working with his children using mutual respect and getting them to take accountability. He mentioned positive parenting techniques, and I had hoped he could share where he gets this information so I can try to learn these techniques for my family. My children are young, under five, but I'm sure they can be applied at all levels. I'd appreciate it if you put me in contact with him. I'm going to try to include an audio file with this email. The audio file is in relation to a topic idea I had, that being gratefulness for the alcoholism in my life. I know when I heard this said at a meeting for the first time, I said to myself, they are nuts. No one could be thankful for this mayhem caused by this disease. I have to admit my opinion has changed. I'm currently working on my step seven and a bit of 11. Thanks to hearing you mention the steps should be worked in order, except 11. It can be worked at any time. Thank you for all your hard work in making this podcast. It does make a difference in my life. At least I tell all I know who are in the program about it. It has accelerated my recovery and made a big difference in my life. Sincerely, Ashley from Alberta. Hello, my name is Ashley, and I am a grateful member of Al-Anon. I've been in the program for about four years. In three months, it will be four years. I came through the doors of Al-Anon because my life had become unmanageable trying to deal with the effects of alcohol in my mother's life and my life. I started doing my fourth step work, truly doing my fourth step work, about four months ago. I finished it around three months ago. And in the middle of that process, I went out for coffee with a new-ish member to the Al-Anon program after a meeting. And our conversation was on, you know, just Al-Anon and its effects in our lives and what it looks like to us and just our lives in general. She proceeded to challenge me with a question about if my mother was causing me so much pain in my life, why do I still have her in my life? Why don't I just take time away and and cut her out of my life for however long I need or indefinitely? I didn't know truly how to answer her. And the reason I didn't is I had already done this process of cutting someone out of my life So I cut my father out for two years. I didn't speak to my dad. And at the time, that's what I needed to do, and it felt right, and and I did it. But I learned from that. I didn't feel right doing it again. I couldn't explain to her why. I I just said, I doesn't feel right. I can't do it. So the fall after this meeting or this conversation, the following day I had committed to doing step work, fourth step work with my sponsor. And so after going through more of that process with her and thinking about the conversation the night before, I was finally able to put my thoughts and feelings together because it's one of the things I struggle with is understanding my feelings. 
exactly what they are and what's going on inside of me. So I thought about it for a while, and then I wrote her a message. And in writing this message, I was able to actually understand my feelings around this issue in my life. If it wasn't for that conversation with this newcomer, I would never have understood it myself. So I was very thankful that she challenged me and made me think about, well, why don't I? And why do I feel this way? So I wanted to share with you all the message that I wrote with her so that maybe if you're struggling with this in your life, you might learn something from it. I know I learned a lot. So here's the message. I do not look at my mom as the source of pain and problems in my life. That source is my attitude and behavior towards her. This is my true problem. I, in the past, have martyred myself by blaming her and calling her the problem and the cause of all my pain. This was me deluding myself. If I cut her out of my life, it will serve me no better than if I cut off a broken finger. The pain of that moment will be gone, but I will still have the issues due to the fact that I cut my finger off instead of taking time to heal a broken finger. I will still have my character defects and my attitude problems if I remove her from my life. My mother is my biggest mirror, and I believe this is the true reason she is in my life. She reflects to me my worst attributes. In doing so, I am forced to see them, acknowledge them, and change the reflection to one I am happier to look at. Without her, I cannot do this, and therefore I am thankful she is in my life. I am thankful she has been my practicing ground and put up with my poor attitudes for so long. She has given me more love and patience than I deserve. She is broken, flawed, and always will be, but so will I. I believe the point of Al-Anon is to heal ourselves, not to try and force others to heal. If I cut her from my life, I feel that my true motives in doing so would be to manipulate and guilt and shame her. Through my actions, I would be saying, you are not a good enough. Your best was not good enough. Do better or you cannot be in my life. I believe this to be very wrong. I have no right to treat her this way. I've been horrible to her at times and she never kicked me out of her life. I am thankful for the opportunity to continue to grow that she is giving me. If I feel miserable and annoyed and hurt, then no one but myself is to blame. So this was a huge realization for me because I had always heard people say, oh, I'm grateful for the alcoholic in my life. And and I think I said it once or twice in the meeting too. And, and I, I'm sure I did feel some form of gratitude. I just don't think it was fully understood in my part. It took me until that evening conversation before I fully understood the magnitude of it in my life and how I am truly grateful for it. The reason I'm truly grateful for it is because my grandparents on both sides of my family were alcoholics. And they taught my parents the isms and my parents did the best with what they had and continued that tradition in our family. So had my mom not started drinking later in my life, which was in my 20s is when she... When the uh, alcohol became an issue and affected our lives, our family's lives, in somewhere in my 20s, 
if had it not been for this intense period in our lives, I never would have walked through the doors of Al-Anon. I would not be improving myself right now. I would not be on step seven right now. I would not have had the privilege of working a fourth step and learning who Ashley is, learning to trust myself, learning to actually find out who I am and not who my character defects were. This process is eye-opening and soul-enriching and I am learning so much right now and so thankful for this program. But I know without a doubt that if my mother never started drinking and it didn't start affecting my life, I'd still be keeping on with my old behaviors that I was taught growing up and that I picked up from living with the isms of the disease, that I would still be the old Ashley right now. I would still have all those, and everyone else would be the problem, not me. Because that's how I looked at it. So I am truly very thankful that my mother went down the path that she did, because I was able to go down the path that I did. And without that in my life, it wouldn't have happened that I found the program, that I worked the steps and progressed through them and learned that I am not the sum total of my experiences and that I can be something else that I choose to be. So thank you, and I hope this experience, Strength and Hope, spoke to you. Thank you, Ashley. That's a great sharing. And echoes, I think, some of my experience where I also said, how could I ever be grateful for this? But, you know, I am. How do you feel about that idea? Uh, (laughs) I feel like that was a real turning point in my recovery when I could see the hardships in my life as real blessings. And that goes back to that, that friend's death so early on. But when I was, you know, so in my disease with the addict in my life, I had no idea I would ever come to a place where I could be thankful for the lessons that I've learned from it. But it was very clear when my dad was sick that I did have gratitude for that experience. And sometimes I had to keep my mouth shut about it because not everybody was in that same place and certainly not him who was experiencing it. But through the program, I've learned that that's okay. You know, there's, I have a really beautiful inner life that people don't have to see in order for it to be real. Mm -hmm. Esther sent us a couple of sayings. Hi, my name is Esther. I live in Vancouver, and I love this podcast. Thanks for doing this. I have a couple of sayings for you. Don't cry before they hit you. And when I'm quiet, I look prettier. That first one, I'm like, I don't even want to think about, you know, hitting people, but I understand the sense of it, which is, it's it's about not anticipating bad things that might not happen, I guess. I don't know. What, what do you take from that? Yeah, um... Uh, what do they call that? Oh gosh, what am I trying to say about catastrophizing? There's another way to right. say Yeah, no, catastrophizing. Yeah, that works. About, you know, just assuming the best. We assume the worst. Right. And we put ourselves into our own wrestling matches and our own, you know, we expect the worst to happen. And that's that's on us. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the second one's about... When the, I'm quiet, I look prettier. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just say the patriarchy dies hard. <laughs> and that is not 
an unturned stone in my own recovery program about sort of uh, beauty standards and how as a woman I am, how I am supposed to be, what I'm supposed to look like, how I'm supposed to behave and what the expectations are of me just by nature of my gender. I'm not so interested in pretty as I am in beauty. And I think that beauty comes from a different place. Mm -hmm. Beauty is not something that is on the outside. Yeah. And it and is certainly not reflective of whether or not you open your mouth or not. I also can, some, I, I do need to not, you know, say nothing, do nothing. I think it is, it is helpful for me to not always speak, but I also think it's really important to speak when needed. Yeah. I think what I, what I take from that for myself is this idea that if I don't have to interject myself at every opportunity, I'll get along with people better. If I don't feel like I always have to say something. Less is more is probably one way to think, think about that. Thinking about what I do as a sponsor, what we do in meetings. Mm-hmm. By being silent, we give people space to open up. I can absolutely relate to that. I am quick to interject. You know, I'll even interrupt myself in the middle of a thought. <laughs> I'm so eager. Eagerness is at the top of my moral inventory now because I want to contribute. You know, I want to share. Yeah, when we sit back and we listen we invite God to speak through other people. And that's a really important part of my recovery process is, and that silence. It's like, sometimes I'll have the recovery show in my ears for a, more than I need to, because sometimes I, I think that I, I don't want the silence either in my head or in my home mm-hmm. or if my kids are at their dads, you know, if, if I always have music going, or if I always have a podcast going, I can ask myself why, what, what is my motivation for that? Is it because I'm, I fear loneliness that invitation to either have conscious contact with God or to have a conversation with myself, that's been an important part of my healing. You want to read uh, Tanya's note? Sure. Tanya writes, Hi, Spencer and Eric. Eric, congratulations on your eldest daughter attending two Al-Anon meetings. What a beautiful Father's Day present for you. You are a shining example of recovery, and this is a beautiful testament to the power of attraction. Spencer, congratulations to you on your acceptance of your parents' situation and allowing them the dignity of their own agency. What a lovely Father's Day gift to give your dad. My 20-year-old son recently returned from a birthright trip to Israel where he spontaneously decided to have a bar mitzvah and is now observing Shabbat with me on Friday evenings. I am following him on my own birthright trip to Israel for mothers in July. All of this and so much more is possible because of this program and your podcast has played a very important role. After only two years, I have developed a deep spiritual connection to myself, God, and my loved ones and have found a new purpose in my life to strive to pass on the miracles of recovery to my children. Well, thank you, Tanya. And and we are actually recording this on Father's Day. You know what I did today? I played the ukulele, which is one of my forms of self-care and spiritual connection. I played some songs that I had sung for my dad before he died, and that was really special. Yeah. You picked a song from one of my favorite artists for your third song here. Florence and the Machine. Yeah. This is probably a song you featured on the show before, but you've got the love. When I first heard the song, I hadn't listened very carefully, and I thought it was... <laughs> the codependent version of this, you've got the love that I need. You are going to fulfill me. You are finally the right sized person for the God shaped hole inside of me. And now when I hear the song, I listen a little bit more carefully to the lyrics. Sometimes I feel like throwing my hands up in the air. I know I can count on you. Sometimes I feel like saying, Lord, I just don't care, but you've got the love I need to see me through. Sometimes it seems the going is just too rough. 
and the things go wrong no matter what I do. Now and then it seems like life is just too much, but you've got the love I need. A little later on, she sings, time after time, I think it's just no good because sooner and later, sooner or later in life, the things you love, you lose, but you got the love I need to see me through. That just speaks so powerfully that nothing in this life is guaranteed. The impermanence of life has been proven over and over and over again. And we all, we all have the same fate, but what gets me through is this sense of connection with my higher power that, you know, when I close my eyes at the end of the night, regardless of my kids are here or if I have a partner with me or not, I, I am surrounded by the love that I need and, and I have it at my fingertips. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.